Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 310th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world this week from the shores of the magnificent Sydney Harbour in Australia. I'm here for a presentation in Melbourne for the ALH conference, which I'm speaking at. So I'm looking forward to that. I was also fortunate last Saturday to go to the Hyperloop facility in Los Angeles and have a look at what Hyperloop are doing. It is absolutely extraordinary. And so those 750-mile-an-hour trains are very close, and I'll tell you more about that next week. Now, we all know that music plays a huge role in all our lives, but do you know it can actually greatly improve your concentration and your creativity and your productivity? I mean, I need all of those things. So I'd like to just chat to you today about the type of music you should listen to to achieve these things. Now, music can prevent us being distracted at work and improve our productivity. The University of Birmingham in England shows that music is effective in raising efficiency and repetitive work. So if you're checking emails or putting widgets on some sort of machine or filling out a spreadsheet, adding music will make your task go by that much quicker. When it comes to tasks that require more brain power, finding that perfect playlist, well, that's not so easy. So based on what we know about how music affects productivity, you should try playing music through your headphones the next time you're feeling you know, a bit unproductive. Happens to me often. <laughs> now, songs that include the sound of nature are great. It was researchers discovered that adding a natural element boosts moods and focus. Sounds of nature can mask intelligible speech just as well as white noise while enhancing cognitive functioning. It, it also increases the ability to concentrate and increasing overall worker satisfaction. So you can just simply listen to recordings of nature sounds. It might be a river, it might be trees rustling, anything like that. Now, songs that you enjoy, most people want to put on the songs that you enjoy, but the University of Miami found that personal choice in music is important, especially in those who are moderately skilled at their jobs. Um, participants who listened to music they enjoyed completed their tasks more quickly and came up with better ideas than those who didn't because the music improved their mood. So when you're stressed, you might make a decision more hastily. You have a very narrow focus of attention. And when you're in a positive mood, you're able to take in more options. I've got to say that um, in our marketing business, um, we would play music in five-minute bursts and we'd have Led Zeppelin for five minutes and the Beach Boys for five minutes and then Bark for five minutes and then whatever else and we used to change it every five minutes and it really increased productivity because it's impossible to think the same way listening to Brahms as it is listening to Def Leppard. You get a totally different attitude on your thoughts so you can encourage creativity by doing that. 
songs without lyrics. Now, words are distracting because, you know, most songs, we, we've all had a situation where we know a song or think we know a song. We've heard it a hundred times. We try to sing along with it. And the words that we've got in our head from what we've heard are nothing like what the lyrics actually are. So um, when you're listening to songs that have got lyrics, you're continually trying to work out the words. And uh, speech distracts about 48% of office workers. So when masking conversations with music, don't do it with music that has lyrics because your focus simply shifts from your work to the words. Tempo is another thing that's important. Canadian researchers found subjects perform better on IQ tests when listening to up-tempo music. So if you, your work requires you to be more upbeat, you could try listening to music that matches this tempo. Baroque music, for example, is a popular choice for many needing to get work done. So BMS College of Engineering in Malaysia saw a dramatic reduction in stress and increased relaxation when they listened to music that played at about 60 beats per minute, which is Baroque music. And you play songs also at a medium volume. Volume matters. Um, researchers from the University of Illinois found that moderate noise levels are just right for creative thinking. So having ACDC blasting in your ears at full volume is not going to help you solve that problem. So listen to music, put it through your headphones, and you'll be surprised how you can kickstart your thinking and uh, your productivity. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? Every day, for those of you who don't know, every day I put out a newsletter talking about all sorts of different subjects, from new technology to advances in medicine to different um, apps. We talk about things like the Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, Ethereum, all of those things. And uh, every day it goes out. It takes 30 seconds to read. We've got 1.7 million people read it every day across the world. And it's totally free. Free. A good price, right? And uh, it's the information's invaluable. So if you don't get it, oh, well, the other thing is we don't give the list to anybody. So you're not going to get solicited by anybody, not even us, for anything else. It's purely getting that newsletter out to as many people as we can. So if you don't get it, go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll. Now, change is happening at a breakneck speed, as we know, and brands have been at the core of selling people stuff for over about 100 years. Well, artificial intelligence could make brands obsolete very quickly. Aaron Shapiro, the CEO of uh, Huge, which is a marketing firm, says brands will take a back seat as technology like artificial intelligence and machine learning become more prevalent. As machines take start to take more, dis, more decisions for people, it, it makes it a hell of a lot harder for marketers to figure out how to get into that equation and how to influence consumer behavior. It's very disruptive for many companies. Artificial intelligence powers technology like, um, for example, Apple's new face recognition unlock tool and Google's smart assistant. It's showing up in users' lives in a big way everywhere, every day. So, for example, think about a futuristic smart fridge, and they're here now. The fridge has got cameras inside to track the food. It sees that your milk is running low 
it uh, connects with the grocery store. It's connected to your credit card. It automatically orders new milk and uh, the fridge knows exactly what you need. It orders it and it's debited to your credit card and it's done. So you're not looking around for milk preferences. You're just getting milk and uh, you're probably going to get the milk if your um, milk's facing the camera. You're probably going to get the milk that you always get. So it really takes a hell of a lot out of, um, of your selection. But AI just won't affect your snacking habits. Amazon's Alexa Assistant already lets you order products without being too specific. If you've got one of those sitting on your coffee table, you know what I'm talking about. When you need more soap, for example, Amazon picks a soap that it thinks that you'll like based on its algorithm. And uh, Amazon already is able to sort through the hundreds of brands of soap and pick the soap (laughs) that you think you're going to want. So AI is both very exciting and very scary if you're trying to determine what people should buy. Now, this this program is targeted to entrepreneurs, and so we love bringing you stories of success by entrepreneurs, and this one's a good one. It's about a 24-year-old immigrant who built a $2 billion business starting with $50,000. billion, that's $2,000 million from 50K. Uh, Paresh Davdra co-founded Rational FX with um, Rajesh Agrawal when he was 24. He got a personal loan, and this is great. He went into the bank and he said, I want a personal loan. Uh, no, I want a loan for the for, to start up this business, and the bank, like most businesses, said, you know, fuck off. We're not giving you any money. So he said, okay. So the very next day he goes in and he applies for a car loan. They give it to him instantly. <laughs> and then he used the money from the car loan, which was about five times more than he asked for for the um, business loan, and he started the business. And uh, it was a big gamble. He just got out of college. He, he had huge um, student debts. And uh, here he is borrowing more money. But 12 years later, which is now, Rational FX is turning over $2 billion and is processing $10 billion in payments. Not bad, huh? For an immigrant. When we sit there and say, why don't we round up immigrants and deport them? Well, this would have been a very bad guy to deport. The first problem they encountered when they're setting up the company, which is a foreign exchange business, was funding. So they um, got the the car loan, as I said, and they sold their furniture, the two of them, sold their furniture, and they managed to get together almost 50 grand, and then they used credit cards to finance it along for another 10 months or so before they started making money. Now, that's a big gamble. And uh, shows great commitment. So they, they, you know, these guys worked hard. They attended every event they could attend. It didn't matter what it was or where it was or what it was for. They'd turn up, they'd talk to people, they'd give out business cards, and they'd just chat to people and tell them what they did. And because they did it almost every night of the week, which is more perseverance than most of us have got, Word of mouth grew very fast. Now, they didn't pay themselves, and they ploughed every bit of spare cash into hiring more staff. 
and they stayed with Davdra's father. And uh, one of them slept on the couch and one of them had a bed <laughs> so that they would save on rent. So just think about that. You know, you're not earning any money. You're living on a couch. You've got debt up to your eyeballs and you keep knocking on doors. That's that's pretty good, I reckon. And began paying themselves minimally around eight months after moving business into the big city. And this method of growing a business is uh, that's pretty unusual today because most entrepreneurs in finance and tech tend to go to venture capitalists to raise money for expansion. And, of course, the problem with that is that you've got to give away a big chunk of your business and uh, then venture capitalists want to have a say in how they run it and then, you know, on it goes and you end up with a much smaller portion of your business, a lot less risk, of course. You're not in debt or you're not up for the, the debt that you're in. Your um, uh, venture capitalist is going to cut that. So people generally go out and raise money from a venture capitalist and uh, it's a good way to go. But these guys decided they didn't want to do that. For First of all, they didn't understand how venture capitalists work. And after a couple of meetings with venture capitalists and negotiating how much of their business they have to give away and the fact that they weren't allowed to take any money out of the company until all the debts were covered, etc., etc., they said, uh-uh, not going to do that. And so they financed the whole thing themselves, kept 100% of their business, and... Uh, now they're doing 10 billion turnover a year. And ironically, they're constantly approached now by, guess what, venture capitalists and private equity investors who now want a piece of them because they're successful. But they're still in a big growth curve and uh, they believe that it would be really premature to sell it. And I agree with them good decision. I mean, if you've got the balls to do it, that's the way to go. So they launched ZenPay. I love this one. They were do- they're doing so well that they launched ZenPay in 2012. And this lets people send money overseas online and allows people to pay as much as or as little as they like for the service. So you send, you know, you go to um, Western Union now and you send money overseas and they take a big chunk of it. It's very expensive to do. ZenPay lets you send the money overseas and if you haven't got anything, if you haven't got any money to pay for sending it, don't pay. If you want to contribute a couple of bucks or 2% or 5%, contribute it. And guess what? It is, uh, it's targeted obviously at immigrant communities sending money to family overseas it became operationally profitable when you can pick how much you pay in just four years. I reckon that is a fantastic success story. My guest today was another success story, Barry James Folsom, who has over 40 years of executive management and strategic marketing experience with a successful track record of growing divisions and companies rapidly into category this guy has a phenomenal cv he grows companies from a few million bucks to 50 million or 100 million over and over and over again jeez and i'll be back with barry he's a good friend of mine he's a member of metal and i'll be back with barry on voice america business channel right after this short break 
Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, this is the interview segment of the show where we, we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting and some of the most successful business people. We talk about what they do, what's made them successful, and we talk about their challenges, how they overcame them, and uh, what we try to do is find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, you read through a resume and you you say, wow, that person's got fantastic credentials, but it's nice just to um, get behind that resume and find out what it is that really drives them. And the reason this segment's so important is because it's really, not even really, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business. You know, we know that the failure rate of businesses today is about 95%. Um, so out of every 100 people who start a business, 95 of them don't succeed. So we need to get all the help that we can. And that's why I urge you constantly to Go out, get mentors, and mentors are not people next door or your cousin or your friend. Mentors are people that have been out there, been successful, and know how the world works because there's a big difference between sitting in a college or sitting in a little office and inventing things and then going out into the real world and see what happens and the pressures that are on you. So you need to take on board all the advice that you can get um, and then build on that. Now, Barry James Folson has over 40 years, it's a long time, isn't it, 40 years, of executive management and strategic marketing experience and he's got an unbelievable track record of growing divisions and companies rapidly into category leaders. Um, People call him the Silicon Valley tech guru he uh his cv is incredible so i'm only going to touch on a couple of his accomplishments in this intro um we'll talk about more when um when i'm talking with him but barry's played pivotal roles in the creation of four major market categories pcs workstations internet data centers and web conferencing he's the chief enabler at 
at grow to $50 million, a strategic marketing growth consulting firm. I don't know why he doesn't hire me as a consultant. I must have a talk to him about that. Now, Barry was in a strategic advisor to the CEO of Motorola's Home Mobility Solutions and served on the Corporate Marketing Council Microsoft Motorola Partnership Board and was executive sponsor for strategic relationships with Sony, Google, Yahoo, Sling, Sony, ABC Pictures, ABC Disney, NBC. And, you know, that's an incredible roster of companies. I mean, it's the who's who of companies, and um, Barry's been right in the middle of all of these. At Exodus Communications, he drove a singular focus on internet data centres, reducing the sales cycle by 50%, increasing sales close rate to 100%, and he grew sales 400% in seven months. He was president of Spectrum Holobyte, an electronics entertainment company, which grew in one year from 13 million to 70 million. He was a sun executive during his four-year hypergrowth period, which took it from 100 million to 1.7 billion. So just to sum that little bit up, Barry James Folsom really knows how to build businesses and profits. And that's a skill that very few people have been able to master. And I'm proud to say that he's a, a good friend of mine. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Well, thanks for having me on, Bob, and that was a great introduction. I really appreciate it. You're being heard all around the world today, so um, as you always are, be good. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you started your career in the early PC days, dating back around 1980s or so, and you've been the CEO of public and private companies in Silicon Valley. How do you, and, and you talk about turning companies around using unfair advantages. What the hell are unfair advantages? I thought unfair advantages when you went and burnt down your competitor's factory. Well, that is <laughs> the old way of doing it, I guess. <laughs> but fortunately, as you indicated, uh, mentoring is a key aspect of helping young entrepreneurs grow, and I was very fortunate that I had some mentors along my path. They included John Doerr, Vino Koshla, John Scully, yep. and Regis McKenna, and I was very fortunate when I was CEO of Radius to have Regis on my board. He also was a mentor to another CEO of a company in, in Silicon Valley, Apple, and we Steve and I both learned from Regis about the strategic advantage of marketing and how important it is in creating those unfair advantages. Part of that, of course, is creating uh, your brand value proposition. And as we'll discuss in a little bit here, it's it, most young entrepreneurs keep trying to add features or capabilities to a product and they think they'll increase sales and that stuff. Yeah. And yep. what I learned a long time ago is counterintuitive that by focusing on building the best product, you will not win market share and you will not achieve the maximum cash flow in your market segment. I agree. Couldn't agree more. 
you've got to have a great product, not the best product, a great product, and marketing, which is not valued by most young entrepreneurs, is the determinant that determines whether you gain market share and, more importantly, cash flow share in the marketplace. Yeah, that's true. I think it's important to point out here, you know, I um, I speak on similar things to you. Um, I think what's important is that um, I emphasize when I present that brand awareness means nothing. It's the equity you have in your brand. You just called it brand whatever it is, but the equity that you have in your brand is what's important. I mean, millions of people heard of Kodak, millions of people have heard of Saab, 99.9% awareness for both of them, and they're both broke. So just because somebody knows who you are doesn't mean that you're going to penetrate. Yeah, and that's why I call it part of my playbook, one of the four pillars of that playbook. I call it Big M Marketing. Right where the M stands for gaining margin dollars. Most people mistakenly think that marketing is PR and advertising and a little bit into social media, but it's really about the customer journey. Yep. And if you don't start understanding your customer journey and who is the target persona you're focusing on, and going into the detail, how is your service or product helping them achieve a goal they have, and measuring in your key and only KPI, are your target personas achieving their goals? Right. And it's not about them necessarily using your product or service. That's not customer success. Customer success is they got a bonus and they got a raise and a B2B sense. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There was a study released not that long ago by PW PricewaterhouseCoopers um, that showed that today, um, in contribution to business growth and to profitability, the customer service, great customer service, putting that in the broad term, not just in would you like fries with that type of term, but in the broad term, customer service is twice as important as adding new products or new features. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to change your vocabulary slightly there. Uh, and I'm going to, it's the customer journey, not just the yep. customer support and service. Yeah. It's the customer journey. And when's the, have you mapped out for, and change your point of view to be customer centric? Have you mapped out every touch point that the customer has to go through from their yep. journey about discovering you? Yep all the way through and how long it takes them, both in elapsed time and total energy they expend using your product or service to achieve the end point, which is achieve their goal. Yeah. Just just touching on touch points for a minute, um, I think it's important for listeners to realize, uh, and I talked to clients about how many touch points do you have with a customer and uh, they usually say oh there's three or four I think when you sit down and look at it um, you could have 10 or 12 or 14 because a person coming out to repair a piece of equipment or your delivery guy they're they're all touch points every time somebody phones the office or goes onto the website they're all touch points so you've got to make every one of those a memorable experience for the customer right 
Absolutely. And you got to map those out. And what you have in an organization, there's not any single individual responsible directly for all those touch points. And therefore, you've got the fiefdoms in your company, even though it may be small, only focused on their aspect of that and not working across function to say the reason they arrived here is because another touch point brought them over here. Right. And, and, and what are we doing to do that? One of the interesting things that I did when I was early in my career, I made the development team's bonus solely focused on how many support calls we got. The less support calls we got, and by the way, I made sure the 800 number was on the product. Right. So you could see it so they, they could call. And the less calls we got, the higher their bonus. And it was amazing the cultural change that happened when the first year they didn't get much of a bonus. The next year they, they exceeded it by over 100%. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that is the feedback mechanism and the measurement systems that get you the right cultural behaviors. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So besides adding features, um, what are other ways that companies can gain an unfair advantage? And the good thing, yeah. of course, the good thing about this is that most companies don't even consider this stuff, and yet it is right. the difference between success and failure. Yeah. So here's the key here. There are two parts to anybody, and I'm talking more from a tech product perspective, but right. you can apply it to other places. There is the early part, and part of this is only two industries that call their customers users, the pharmaceutical industry and the computer industry. Right. And the first part, to get somebody, quote, hooked on using your product or service could be an economic buyer from B2B perspective as well as the user hooked. Right. Or B2C, just they're both the same target persona. All the way through to six months later, are they addicted to your product or service? And if you took it away, like if I took your smartphone away from you, you would do me bodily harm. Yeah. <laughs> well, what happens is we are all linear in our thinking, and you've got to become non-linear in your thinking, and you've got to tease out what is the found value that addicts people. And what I've found over the years that the found value, if, even if you discover what it is accidentally or not, is not a reason that initially from a tech perspective hooks people and it gets cut from the feature 1.0 list. You cut out the thing that's going to addict them to your product or service because it doesn't help you to hook them. Okay, so I'm listening to this and I've got a, I've got a business and um, I say to them, um, you know, identify your found value. Um, what do they do? How do they start? What, what's yeah, the process? It's, real, it's, it's really straightforward. But they've got to change a few uh, perspectives here. Part of it is changing their point of view. They've got to identify who really is their target persona user and what are the psychographic aspects of that. Yep. So uh, in your case, you're B2B, so you've got business people, and they're trying to achieve something in their business, and they're measuring themselves and getting a promotion on, on ROI. So you go talk to you go get some of them together. You don't share with them 
your product or service. You actually give them a keyword to tease out of them their unarticulated needs. Right. Everybody will tell you what they want. Most people will not tell you what they need because they're not conscious of it. So you yep. sit there for an hour to a 90-minute session, and you coax out of them the insight to what their need is. So I'll give you a quick example that we did at Motorola in the IoT segment back when I was in there, 2004-2005. We looked at, from a home security perspective, and you think about, oh, we had these features that if your home gets robbed and the TV gets taken, that the feature we add is that the TV is replaced by Best Buy and delivered, and you get a check for the broken window that's being repaired, and all that's there before you even get home. That's the feature we're putting in home security. Right. Well, we did a co-creation group. Rather than sharing those features, we, we teased out of them what they wanted, and here's what we discovered, that the mothers who are professional women who aren't at home when the kids come home, those kids are called latchkey kids. Yep. Right? And yep. no mother brags that she has a latchkey kid, but what she wants the kid to know is whether the house is safe to enter or not. Yep. So by making the house safe to enter, the kid can go in there and also tell the mom that the kid's in the house. And fortunately, we were doing it at Motorola feature phones, so we were going to add the features to the phone of letting the kid know, sell more phones as well, that the house was safe to enter from our home security perspective and the mom to know the kid was home. Right. Rather than getting a TV set delivered. Yeah. Yeah, I understand and let me that. tell you, that found value, if you took that away from that professional woman, that mother, she would do you bodily harm. <laughs> okay. Now, so if I've got a company and I've identified... Um, four separate target markets and I have four different um, presumably channels to reach those people so am I looking for different um, unfair advantages in each of those segments let me guess and no Uh, the (laughs) first question I'll ask is what size company are you And if you are a Fortune 50 company like Motorola with those four things you want to go after, I'm going to give you one answer. But more than likely, you are a small, uh, young company with anywhere from one to 25 employees. Yep. And this is counterintuitive, but you want to let go of three of those market segments and only focus on one and go after a sub-segment initially. And the reason is, even you think about a Fortune 50 company like Motorola was with over 100,000 people, if they're even 5% effective, they have 10 times more person hours per week than you do with 25 people. Yep. It's not your network, it's not your capabilities, it's not your experience, it's not your skills, it's that you don't have enough person hours during the week to go after four. And since you don't, since you don't have enough hours, you never go deep in any of those. I'll give you a quick example of a company I helped out. 
They were in the disaster recovery area. They backed up all the PCs and servers and business. I took a quick look at their sales, and 54% of their sales was in legal. The next biggest segment was 9%, and that was finance. Right. So it was clear for legal. So I got them to focus only on legal, and since we only focus on legal, I spent an hour as the marketing head, and I found a list of the budget dollars for all legal IT people prioritized. Yep. So I knew how to change our messaging to gain the unfair advantage of shifting dollars that were the, that were the higher priority list to be spent by IT and shift those dollars to be spent on our product. And that, but those were our meta competitors. So we started closing sales because I changed all the messaging. We didn't change the product. Yep. I just changed how we message, and I stole from the legal industry their term that what we delivered was business continuity. Right. That, is that is that environment changing with all the? Um, technological assistance um, or tools that you can get now that can um, very effectively track all your marketing channels, your marketing messages, all of those things can be instantly tracked and, and worked on. Or does it say, um, in, in the old days, five years ago, um, you couldn't target perhaps more than one target segment but has that changed now with all the technology that gives you instant dashboard feedback? Yeah. No, it doesn't. And let me tell you why. Because if you're going after four, you have not changed your point of view to be customer-centric, so you're touting it in your language and the way you speak, not in the language of the business people, if you're a B2B, yep. or if you're a consumer, in their language. So you've got to actually translate, if you're going after four segments, you've got to translate into four different business or consumer languages depending on those four markets, right? Yep, yep. And, 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 and so I tell you, you've got to translate. You say, I don't have time to do that. Exactly. You're small. You don't have enough person hours. But if you focus on one, you can change every message on your website into the language because you listen to your target persona and how they speak and what vocabulary words they use. And remember, from a B2B perspective, you are educating the person who is your champion to overcome the naysayers in the company. Yeah. And if you burden them with translating your speak into their speak, they give up. Because if your competitor has the unfair advantage of putting their website into their speak, then they'll just represent that company and land the business for them. There's another way you gain unfair advantage. So I'll give you one last part about the data. So for this company, it was disaster recovery. My tagline was uh, recover fast, rest easy. Good one. Nice. And after I left, they changed it to recover fast, recover fully. Yeah. But they did the data on the messaging, yep. <laughs> and then they switched it back. <laughs> yeah, I can believe it. I can believe it because you know um, you've you've got to develop a rapport with the customer, and the only way you do that is by giving them what they want, not what you want to achieve. 
Let me let me hit you on your vocabulary, and I'm going to do two things here. It's not what they want. You got to hit them with what they need, so yep. that you get them addicted, and, and you got to tease out that need. And I'm going to I keep trying to change words on you, and I'm going to give you one more example that's very important for your audience here. Many of them are familiar, not all of them, but many of them are familiar with the terms product market fit yep. and MVP. Don't share this with anybody else. Keep this to yourself. But if you change these, these two phrases to something else, it will make all the difference in the world to your chance of success, and it gives you an unfair advantage. It's market product fit. Market becomes before product. Yep. MVP stands for minimum viable product. Yes. How arrogant the development team is that they are the determinants of whether the product is viable and therefore can be shipped. Change those words to minimum valuable product. Right. MVP is minimum valuable product. Who determines whether it's valuable? Your target persona. Sure. It's a huge cultural change. Are you letting development determine what is your offering, or are you letting your target persona and you're delivering the minimum valuable product? Right. Now, if you are delivering the minimum valuable product versus the competitor delivering the minimum viable product, you have an unfair advantage. I agree. I agree. So, now I'm, I'm sitting out there listening to this, and I think, okay, so I've, I've got to really understand my target market. Um, I know who they are. What do I need to really know about them? What are the most important things I need to know about my target market? Yeah. Uh, if you're B2B, you have the economic buyer, and then you have the users. If you're B2C, unless you're selling men's shoes, your target market is women, because 80% of all consumer purchases in the United States is determined directly or indirectly by women. Yeah. Okay? Not men, women. It so, is in our house. <laughs> yes. So what you've got to do, you've got to go, so the business case, you've got two sets, consumer case, one set. You need to go listen to a minimum of seven of them across the country, and ideally a, a total of 33, and you can put them in, in, in group sessions to do this where you have five of them or seven of them at one time, yep. teasing out of them and listening to them. And then out of that set, you create your own your own target persona advisory board, have five or six of them that you meet with on a monthly basis and keep updating them and listening to them. Right. And remember, you are not, with these sessions, talking. Your lips are sealed. You're not allowed to talk. You're only allowed to listen and ask questions. And I'll give you the last key. When... Your listening session, someone will say something you relate to and it reinforces what you think. Pause. Ask the first why, because when you ask a why, you get the rationale and the knowledge sure. behind that. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the trick. After you get that answer, ask the second why. And that's when the gems come out. Right. I understand that. Okay, um, so let's move on to Big M Marketing. So what does that mean? Well, it stands for margin dollars. And 
what I what I'm saying about that is it's it's strategic marketing. You want to create new categories, and and you want to, you know, you talked about burning down uh, your competition early on. What you want to do is create it so that you choke off customers going to the to your competitors. Yeah. Right. And, and I call that denying oxygen to them. And part of the way of doing that is you build up an ecosystem around your offering. Right. Okay. Okay. And you know, out of out of the fifty marketing weapons they are, you've got to build what I call your economic model, not your business model, your economic model, through the sensitivity analysis is based on how much cash flow you create with all the assumptions you have and determine which are the two or three key variables that make the most difference in generating cash. So I'll give you yeah. a quick example. Uh, was working on a uh, social TV site, and we had people signing up through Facebook, and all we did all the numbers. We forecasted the customers' behaviors not only did we forecast our revenue, we forecasted their behaviors and measured our forecast against their actual behaviors. No one does that. It gives you the insights. And then we were able to determine it wasn't the initial churn we had to focus on. It was actually we weren't as viral. We weren't getting as much viral as we thought, word of mouth out of it. So we focused our development on increasing being more viral. Right. And that actually lowers your customer acquisition cost. And since we were measuring how much word of mouth we were generating and we weren't generating much, we fixed that and started generating a lot of word of mouth. Our customer acquisition costs came down and our cash flow went through the roof. Right. And after all, being successful in business, I mean, I talk to a lot of people who um, have a business or have a retail store and you say, how's business? And they say, yeah, we're, we're quite successful and all they're actually doing is making wages or losing money. Um, and in the end, being successful is about making money. It's about making a profit. Um, and that comes down to generating more cash flow than your competitors um, with better margins. So how do you – what do you focus on? Your The volume of cash flow, which I guess chokes off your competitor, or um, – Increasing margins and profit, not worrying so much about cash flow. Well, you've got that's a hard question to answer, answer without more context, right? Right, because yeah, no, I understand that different criteria there. So that's why I asked company, you. <laughs> what, what I look for is you, you want to be focusing on getting people addicted and focus on generating what I call advocacy word of mouth for people using your product or service. Right. And what do I mean by advocacy word of mouth? Advocacy means that they're, they're posting you on Facebook or they, they see you and meet you and they say, hey, I, I just started using this product or service. You need to use it. That's advocacy. The other kind of word of mouth is if I'm asked what phone do I use, I will tell you. Advocacy word of mouth is I'm in your face telling you you need to switch to the same phone I use, right? right? And so what are you doing? Where in your discussion with marketing and sales and with development, 
Are you talking about what do you need to have in your product or service that leads to advocacy word of mouth where people are pushing on people to, to buy or uh, use your product or service? Right. We're running a bit short of time, but um, in the final item in your playbook is a strategic f- uh, framework. What's that? Yeah. The strategic framework is all about the important aspects of the, the mission statement, your core value proposition, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, you kind of your why you're, you're doing this and what your culture is and making sure the culture is supporting this and not getting in the way. And it's also understanding the strategic architecture. I'm coming more from a tech product perspective here. Uh, strategic architecture. So you've got a long-term roadmap that's laid out. It may be evolving and you're, you're changing it on a daily basis. That's okay. But you've got it laid out at least three years of key capabilities you need. Right. So that as they are building the underlying architecture of your product, they aren't precluding you from doing other things later. And I, it, it, a short version of the story, I worked as CEO of a place where the founders came out of Xerox Park, had never built a program, much less a product. They didn't know about internationalization. Yep. And it costs you nothing when you do internationalization. Translation costs you money, but they didn't do they didn't structure it as internationalizable so it was a million dollar bill to go back and redo all the code architecturally to make it internationally which would have been free if they if, if they knew at that time right so i can't tell you how many tech startups have had to rewrite their products because they didn't get the strategic framework right of their architecture and you go to the end and work your way backwards. Again, it's another nonlinear technique. So part of what I do is help them do a little dive on their architecture to make sure that they're not shortchanging themselves, that it allows them as the trunk to allow them to add branches as they, as they build out. Okay, so I'm sitting out there and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, this Barry James, he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, how do I get in touch with you? It's real simple. There's two ways. Uh, it's uh, email is Barry James at grow p o five zero m dot com grow to fifty million dot com and my phone number is six five zero four hundred zero six hundred. I don't know why we're not working together. I'm sitting here thinking, why aren't I working with this guy? Um, Barry James Folsom, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you, go, if you go to Google and look up Barry James Folsom, there are a plethora of articles and stories about Barry James. So have a look. It'll be well worth your while. I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week, we're broadcasting from the shores of beautiful Sydney Harbour in Australia. Now, Toys R Us filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the US and Canada last Monday. The children's toy retailer was burdened with $5 billion of debt, which became difficult to pay down as, you know, the online competitors drew in more customers. There's so much competition in that space. Same store sales in the last quarter fell 4.1% and resulted in $164 million in losses. Now, Toys R Us efforts to reform its in-store and online shopping experiences weren't enough to avoid bankruptcy. I mean, they really tried hard to revamp their stores. They brought, put in Nerf target practice areas. They allowed people to fly drones in the stores, and they thought all this um, interactive atmosphere would boost their traffic. It didn't work. So... It also price-matched online holiday deals from Amazon and other e-retailers in an attempt to win back customers. They also added extensive omni-channel options to afford shoppers shoppers more flexibility. You know, the retailer did everything that they could think of doing. They provided omni-channel shopping methods like click and collect, ship to shore, um, reserve online, pay in store, ship from store, they did everything that they thought they could do to pick sales up and um, compete with the likes of Amazon, but they didn't work. Um, Although Omnichannel now contributes 40% of the company's e-commerce net sales, which is double what it was just a few years ago, their in-store traffic and their in-store just can't compete with online. But Toys R Us might have signed its death warrant 10 years ago when it signed up with Amazon to be the exclusive vendor of toys. So Amazon said, yeah, you can be the exclusive vendor of toys and then immediately allowed every other toy vendor that was around to sell on its site, despite the deal. So Toys R Us sued Amazon to end the agreement. And uh, as a result, Toys R Us missed the opportunity to develop its own e-commerce presence early on. So Target think the similar deal to allow Amazon to run its e-commerce operations, but after they did the same thing, they cheated on Target. So um, Target ended the partnership and then spent $2.5 billion a year to boost its online site. Now, Toys R Us, on the other hand, has only pledged $100 million over three years. So over the same period of time, $7.5 billion for Target and $100 million for um, Toys R Us, guess who is winning that battle? Um, Target's doing well. Toys R Us are screwed. Now, retailers must transition to an omnichannel fulfillment model. There's no question about that. For most companies, challenges complicate that transition. Brick-and-mortar retailers must cut delivery times and costs to meet online shoppers' expectations of free and fast shipping. I know at our house, we get we get product delivered here every day. We get all sorts of crap. It just keeps coming. And if we can't get it the next day, 
or even same day, we won't buy it. And so the online stores and, and the brick and mortar stores are sitting there saying, you know, we've got to build an infrastructure that allows us to deliver stuff immediately. And uh, very few retailers have mastered these services and that's led to increased shipping costs and that shipping cost, because they can't charge it on to the customer, is eating their profit margins. So in order to optimise costs and realise the full benefits of these omni-channel services, retailers must undertake costly and time-consuming transformations of their logistics, inventory and store systems and, and operations. So... It's a big deal. It's a not an easy problem to solve, and Toys R Us have really got their work cut out. Next week also, I'm going to talk about whether your Facebook messages are really private. You know, there's a billion people communicate through Facebook Messenger every day, and while Facebook says it takes measures to keep uh, users' information private, just how secure are those billions of messages? Well, we've seen from the... um, experience this week of Equifax where 145 million um, people were hacked. It's uh, it's not an easy job no, how much, no matter how much protection. So next week we're going to talk to you about how Facebook messaging is not that secure. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space, get out of the way and let somebody get past who wants to succeed. You know, it's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary. That's not what this world's about. You've got to go in and kick the hell out of it and do the best you can do. It's better to aim for the stars and miss than it is to aim for the gutter and succeed. And if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing you can really be if you want to take a few risks. So I hope you have a sensational week and I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll be broadcasting from back in Hollywood Boulevard in California where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile, please continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.